Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 16 of Unknown Orbits, The Game of Rat and Dragon by Cordwainer Smith. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight we're talking about the story Game of Rat and Dragon by Cordwainer Smith otherwise known in real life as Paul Leinbarger. It is a story about the future where space travel is threatened by invisible beings that attack spaceships, killing the passengers or driving them insane. They're multidimensional demons, I guess is the best way to put it. And the Earth Space Authority comes up with a novel way, a very novel way of dealing with the situation they get human telepaths to join up with cats. Yes, cats. I believe there was another famous story with cats. I, somebody else told me that. I was telling them about this story, and they said, oh, I think I read a story about cats in space. I don't know what, if any of our listeners can clue us in on that. That would be cool. We'd be happy to talk about the other cats in space story. I just remembered. Are you sure we haven't talked about this before? The cat as commander in the Twilight Zone episode with the future soldier. Oh, yeah, we did, we did talk about that when we talked about the Outer Limits, I think. The fact that in the future war where the soldier, he's transported back to the present from this future war, the cats are messengers, and he calls them CO. CO. So he starts talking to the cat, thinking the cat will put him in touch with headquarters. Yeah, that might have been in episode three, though. Yeah, that's when we talked about... No, that was the Lewis Charbonneau episode. Ah, okay. We talked about Corpus Earthling. We talked about that one. But So in this story, the cats are telepathically linked to humans. The thing that's kind of cute about this is they have their own little spaceship. At any rate, so in the story, these cats are able to see these multidimensional beings and help the human beings target them for destruction. So the, the humans and the cats team up in these hunter-killer teams to go after these interdimensional beings. And that's really all there is to the story. It's not a very complicated plot. It's basically just kind of, you know, has a typical day at the office for the interstellar cats and their human telepaths. And they help escort a convoy or a ship through space uh, and keep them safe from these interdimensional beings. But the thing that's really interesting about the story is the relationship between the cat and the human. So that's really it for the story. It was published in Galaxy Magazine, October 1956. And I believe we just talked on our last episode about the difference between Galaxy and Astounding in the 1950s in terms of their editorial slant, that Galaxy was much more interested and characters and relationships. And this is a really great example of that, that galaxy focus that was different than the John W. Campbell astounding focus on science and problem solving and the competent men. This is all about the relationship between the human telepath and his cat. It was nominated for a Hugo Award, deservingly so. 
I happen to think this is a really well-written story. It's one of the better quality stories that I've read in the last few months, and it is really well done. It really gets you to understand and feel that unique relationship between the human telepath and the cat, who's very much, in the story, is very much a cat. They're not really anthropomorphized much. They're very much an actual cat, and as someone who is a proud owner of two cats, both of which are very different, very unique, I can appreciate how cats think, how they're different from people, and how they're different from other animals. And this story really does a great job in spotlighting that unique character of a cat and uses that to good effect in the story. It ends up having kind of a new wave tone to it. For a story that was published in 1956, it does feel a little bit ahead of its time. We should probably talk about Paul Leinbarger, otherwise known as Cordwainer Smith. He was an interesting guy, a very interesting guy. Did he write anything under his own name? Because I swear it's familiar. No, and there's good reason for that. Okay. So he was, first of all, born in Milwaukee. Oh, well, then I'd like him. Hooray for you, Paul. He received a PhD in political science from John Hopkins University. So he's a very smart guy. During World War II, he was a pioneer in psychological warfare. In fact, he wrote a manual, a very important manual of psychological warfare in 1948 called Psychological Warfare. Basically, the, the manual used by the military and the CIA from 1948 on. He was affiliated loosely with the CIA. He did a lot of government work over the decades, over the years. So he was actively involved in dark work, secret ops, that sort of thing. Not in a James Bond sort of a way, but working behind the scenes with the CIA and probably aspects of the military. If you think of all the things the United States was involved in in the 1950s and the 1960s, it might have used psychological warfare. You could certainly draw some conclusions as to what services he might have been rendering to the government. But you can see where being a science fiction writer and using your own name when you've got that kind of a life outside of writing might be a little bit of an issue. So I think he used more than one pen name, but Cordwainer Smith is the one that was used most often. And under that, he did write quite a few pieces of short fiction and I believe one science fiction novel. He wrote a few other novels outside of the field but only one science fiction novel. And he is one of the people rumored to have been Kirk Allen. Now you can ask, who is Kirk Allen? Who is Kirk Allen? <laughs> well, let me tell you who Kirk Allen was. There was a best-selling book in the 1950s written by a famous New York psychologist, Robert M. Linder. It was a 1954 a collection of stories about some of his patients called The 50-Minute Hour. This is starting to sound familiar. You're probably going to remember this particular part of it. He talked in this book about a patient who was obsessed with the idea that he was actually the hero of a series of science fiction adventure stories that took place on the planet Mars, very much along the lines of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars books. But this person had dreams of himself having adventures on the planet Mars, and believed that they were not dreams, that they were memories of him actually having lived on the planet Mars. And You know, that's what I want in my CIA agents, is psychotic episodes. Well, that's the thing. So there's a couple other people that have been put forward as potential persons that could be this Kirk Allen pseudonym. 
But a lot of the information in the book by the psychiatrist fits Paul Lingbarger. And there are several contemporary science fiction authors who are convinced that he was indeed the same person. So it's not 100%. It's a possibility, maybe even a likelihood. But again, like you just said, could you imagine if this was ever confirmed by the CIA that they had somebody on their payroll who thought he was a warrior living on the uh, surface of Mars fighting nine-foot-tall, four-armed green men. It boggles the mind. But again, you know, one thing that I have a bit of a background in, thanks to my Beatnik Spy series that I've written, I do know quite a bit about the CIA in the 1950s. And the CIA in the 1950s was quite a ragtag sort of an operation. Basically, you had a number of people from the OSS in World War II, which was our fighting intelligence arm that was created, that was modeled after the British commandos to some degree. They did much more than just commando work. They also did a lot of intelligence gathering. But a lot of those OSS veterans were the ones that wound up starting the CIA, what became the CIA after World War II. And during the 1950s, they were hiring a lot of different people. They were hiring former police officers. They were hiring lawyers. They were hiring characters, quite frankly. You know, there was a period where they were kind of a very loose, almost outlaw-type outfit. They did a lot of bad things in the 1950s, a lot of secret things. If you ever want to do a deep dive, I would suggest doing any kind of reading on the history of the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1962 and how the CIA basically almost disobeyed direct orders from the president and ran their own little war that was a complete disaster. That's very typical of the early days of the CIA. They were not the sort of super secret professional outfit that we think they are today. So they might have had a lot of latitude when it came to somebody who was a little bit strange, but was extremely bright and intelligent and useful. So I wouldn't be surprised if if he really was Kirk Allen, that they knew about it and they were okay with it because he came to work every day and did a good job. Yeah. There's one other um, connection to the Beatnik Spy series. Paul Langberger was a polyglot and a polyglot is someone who has a natural aptitude for languages. They're kind of like the person who's born with an ear for music and can pick up music very quickly. A polyglot is someone who can pick up languages very quickly. My character, Gunnar Quinn, in the Beatnik Spy series is a natural polyglot. He's a multilingual character. But then in the second book, The Godhead Formula, he ingests a formula that's injected into him by an ex-Nazi scientist, which accelerates his polyglot ability. And he's able to, in an almost superhuman fashion, pick up languages from that point forward. You know, I misremembered that. I thought he was polyglot only because of the Nazi experiment. No, he was he was a natural polyglot. And one of the points, this is getting a little off topic, but one of the points I make in uh, a later novel, The Treasure of the Damned, he has a conversation with a friend of his who points out that someone who has a polyglot ability or an photographic memory or a higher level mathematical ability if they're also a musician, which Gunnar Quinn is also a musician, he's a jazz musician, that that complements that particular skill. And it's often a sign that you have a different kind of intelligence. 
getting back to the story, as I said, I really loved the poetry of the story, the beauty of the character exploration. It's really one of the best written stories I've read. But I also got to thinking, there's not really a whole lot of plot there. It's about the relationship. And when we're talking about writing fiction... Uh, He ends up describing it as love, doesn't he? It almost gets to a weird, cringy point. Because he's telepathic, and he's directly connected into this cat's mind, and has a unique bond with the cat, and the cat is basically like a regal female queen cat, which I've known a few in my days, and, you know, it totally made sense to me, the personality that he ascribed to this cat. Yeah, it did almost cross the line into something a little weird, but again, certainly not back in the 1950s. You didn't get a lot of stories that went this far in detailing and making the central part point of the story, the relationship between two characters. So what I've thought about is how else, how does that work in fiction? When you put a relationship between two characters at the center of the story or an essential part of the story, the one example that I could think of, and I'm, Steve, if you can think of some other examples, that'd be great. But the example that I thought of was the relationship between Frodo and Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings. The fact that not only was Sam essential in making sure that Frodo achieved his mission, but the brotherly love between those two characters kind of showed in the darkest moments of the story the importance of their quest and the decency and humanity that was at the heart of what they were doing, the sacrifice that Frodo was making, and the willingness of Sam to go to any lengths to remain true to him. It's really the heart of the story. It's the heart of the Lord of the Rings. The other thing that that I think comes into play there is that when you have a relationship story, when you have a story that relies heavily on a relationship, you get the opportunity to go deep into the character of both of those two people and playing them off against each other can be an essential tool to a writer. I can think of a probably a bunch of stories. Please do. Like that. Immediately I thought of the Balaro, I think the, how it's Balaro? the Balaro Shield Outer oh. Limits episode. Oh, that which, was that was the one where Robert uh there was one where Robert Culp was talking to the dead. No, that's not the one. It's it was actually the pilot episode where it ends up with them stealing a shield from an alien and the man is stuck inside it. Yeah, he's trying to communicate with the alien and the alien is trapped inside of the field that he created. Oh, no, no, no. That's Cliff Robertson. That yeah, that's was the first episode. Cliff Robertson. That's so, yeah. not the Blero shield? I don't think so. We're getting a lot of overlap in both titles and plots here, but I, I remember there was an episode where an alien comes to Earth and he has the shield that shields him from everything. Okay. And the wife decides that that's going to be worth a lot of money, so she steals it from him, okay. activates it, and realizes that it's part of his physical form and she's stuck in it. And I may be misremembering, but I thought there was a long sequence of her and her husband expressing their love, and that in the end convinces the alien to rescue her by pulling out a vein or something and opening up the shield. Okay. Yeah, again, that's an example of a connection made between two characters. I got a better one. It sounds a little pat with the whole 
you know, love conquers all thing. The alien discovers, I've never heard of this thing called love before. Why, it's mind-blowing. I'm going to have to reconsider everything I know now that I've discovered what love is. We're calling the invasion off until we figure this out. Yeah, it has that sort of trite element to it. There was a story. I think it was called The Moon is Green. Okay. And it was about, in a future society, there's post-apocalyptic nuclear war, and they're all living underground, and the wife is lonely because she has a husband who's neglecting her. Mm -hmm. And she starts having these dreams about a man on the surface, and she eventually falls in love with this man, and she goes back to the surface to be with him. And the husband is trying to drag her back, but in the end, she decides to go with the person she's in love with, even though it means she's going to die in a few days. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good example. The other one from fiction that, that I thought of was kind of an odd choice, Call of the Wild by Jack London. It's been it, too long since I've read it. It's about a St. Bernard dog that gets kidnapped from a pet situation in civilization and winds up getting sold off to a variety of terrible people up in the Yukon, and he rises up through the ranks of dogs to become a brutal leader of dogs, a killer kind of finds his path in the world. And he's a very brutal animal by the time he's been terribly mistreated by a variety of different owners and gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations. And what I remember from the novel is he finally finds this hunter, this trapper who's kind to him. And they develop this bond, you know, out there in the wilderness they both become better beings because of this bond. And then, of course, because it's Jack London and he's like a total Darwinian kind of a guy, the hunter is killed and then the dog goes out and gets revenge by brutally murdering his killers. And then then in the end of the book, he runs off to live with a pack of wolves. So it's this element of two characters finding each other in the middle of a story and learning more about themselves from the other character having an opportunity to have each of them have a character arc that not necessarily runs in parallel, but ends at the same place. Samwise Ganji in, in The Lord of the Rings, his character arc, it seems like a flat arc. He's just the loyal gardener who looks up to and respects and loves Frodo. Initially, he's it's kind of a classic servant-master relationship, but over time, he learns so much about himself and proves himself on the road to Mordor. And he becomes a bigger and better man because of it. And Frodo learns, as Gandalf says earlier in his story, the, the value of pity and empathy turns out to be the thing that saves everyone. They both come back from that journey completely changed. Samwise is still more or less roughly the same person. Frodo's never the same again. That's a great example of how you can use multiple characters in a relationship and that relationship to work out a character arc for each of them and to show the change at the end of the story, how they've changed and how they've grown and they've grown together. I don't know if there's a lot of that in science fiction, certainly not during the period that we're looking at. I hope that I, I run into some more examples of it, but I can't think of too many off the top of my head, to be honest with you. As a writer, what, what do you think about the power of using character relationships in your writing? It's something I'm not good at, so therefore... <laughs> 
Well, there's always the opportunity for growth. And reading stories like this, I think, can help. If you looked at this story as an example of how to do that, it's a great example. In order to do that, you have to fully flesh out each character, which is what Langbarger did in this case. He fully fleshed out the two characters. And when you have that, and then you have them in action, and I think that's a key too, you have to put the two characters in action where they're either working together, working in spite of each other, working at odds at times. That's how you build tension and you develop character, I think. This is also where a lot of life experience comes into play. We've discussed this before, that when you're a younger writer, you don't have a lot of life experience to draw from. When you're older and you want characters like these, you've probably met analogs on the way that you can draw from. Yeah, and let's look back at Langbarger. Langbarger had a PhD from John Hopkins. He was one of the pioneers in psychological warfare, so clearly he had to have been a man who understood a lot about the human mind and how it worked. And that had to be very beneficial to him as a writer. So, you know, maybe that's why his writing seemed so much more advanced than a lot of the contemporary writing that was around at the time is just that level of understanding of the human mind that he had that probably a lot of other writers just didn't possess. Yeah, yeah. Now, Leinbarger was quite a great writer, a very respected writer. This was the second story that he published. The first story that he wrote and got published, Scanners Live in Vain. That was him? I thought that was was someone else. No, that was Cordwainer Smith, Paul Leinbarger. So Scanners Live in Vain was rejected multiple times since it was written in 1948, including by the esteemed John W. Campbell, who said the story was too intense. So it was published in a lesser magazine, Fantasy Book, 1950, but it was rescued by Frederick Pohl, who didn't recognize the writer because it was the first story he ever did get published. And Frederick Pohl put it into an anthology that helped keep it in the minds of people and the attention of people, and that eventually wound up leading to it to become a highly regarded classic in science fiction. So that story and the story we're talking about tonight the Game of Rat and Dragon, are part of a larger literary universe that Leinbarger created called The Instrumentality of Mankind. It is a personal universe that he created that encompasses a future history of mankind. I can't go into it in great detail because I've only just gotten a copy of his short stories, a volume that I'm going to be reading to look more into this, but it's basically the rise and fall of human civilization, colonization of space. Sounds like a sort of a space opera sort of a story, but it it sounds, once you read the details of it, instrumentality of mankind, it's filled with social themes and political themes, and it's very, very advanced in terms of going well beyond space opera and talking about a galactic human empire in human terms. So I'm looking forward greatly to uh, reading all of those stories, including Scanners Live in Vain. I'm hoping to read that shortly, as a matter of fact. And then we will have a future episode where we'll talk about Scanners Live in Vain and the instrumentality of mankind as a whole. So look forward to that at some point in the future. That's all I've got. You've got a final point here? 
You know, back when I collected, I had Fantasy Book. I may be misremembering, but I think it was only like three issues long and I had them all. That's, I bet you wish you still had them now. Because if it had Scanners Live in Vain, that issue, I can't even imagine what that would be worth today. I sold them all around 2008. From what I read, it was a fairly obscure magazine. Nice cover art, though. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I had another thought, which is a lot less philosophical. Okay. I have talked about this before. From very early on, I started categorizing science fiction stories into, I guess you would call them tropes. I didn't think of it at the time. But the idea was, well, if I have a nice idea, what one of these forms would it fit in? That was the intent of this division. And you actually used the phrase, day at the office. This is a day at the office. That was a category I had. Mm -hmm. I'd like that story of someone's ordinary what would have been an ordinary day for them being altered in some way and having to deal with it. And I guess the ultimate example I use is a story, the author I can't recall at the moment, is called, I think it's called Business as Usual During Renovations, where in an attempt to destroy our society, aliens drop off two small devices that can duplicate matter. And because there's two the devices get immediately duplicated and sent out all over. The central character is the manager of a large department store dealing with all the problems that this brings up. Well, we'll have to put that on the list. I think it's worth it. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 16. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.